Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, this morning, we're going to finish that as we read from the last chapter of Second Samuel. Last week, uh, I mentioned that the last four chapters of the book aren't in any kind of chronological order. Uh, they uh, take material from throughout David's life, and they form a kind of epilogue or a kind of uh, coda on his life and his rule. And I think that's really uh, important to keep in mind as we read from 2 Samuel 24. So I'll read verses 10 through 18 and verses 23 through 25. Uh, they're printed in the order of worship. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use this word, this story that we have read and heard together um, to meet us exactly where we are. To meet all of us in whatever conditions we find ourselves this morning, those of us um, who feel tired and worn down or sad or distracted or bored or ready. Meet us in the places of faith that we have, whether we have it or we don't or we're not sure. 
Father, we ask that you would meet us in this word and that you would show us the grace of Jesus and that you would change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I was uh, watching some Olympic swimming last week. Um, I guess I'm one of the, the five or six people that's watching the Olympics this year. And uh, I don't remember the particular event, and I don't remember the name of the American swimmer, uh, but I do remember the announcer saying before this particular race that the, the American had said, no matter what, this is going to be the last race of my career. So that piqued my interest. I paid extra attention to, uh, to that particular race. Um, but less than two minutes later, the guy finished like sixth or something. And that was it. Endings are hard. And I'm sure that if this guy had been given the ability to write the script on the end of his athletic and Olympic career, it would have been ending with him standing at the top of the podium, getting the gold medal around his neck while he was listening to the national anthem being played. And I think something similar about the end of 2 Samuel. I mean, not that anyone was asking him, but I think if someone had asked David, what episode from your life should be remembered at the end, what's the one that we should remember about your days as a king? If someone asked him that, it would not be this one. The one where he messes up again. And the consequences are enormous and harrowing for everyone around him. And for that matter, really, why, why would a writer compiling the life of David end with a story like this, to leave us with a story like this. It's not exactly a ride off into the sunset moment, but of course the writer is not interested in painting David perfectly. And in the beautiful and subversive way that scripture often works, it's exactly the ending that people like you and me need. It shows David at his worst and at his best living with a heart wide open to his only hope for life and death in this world. And I hope that we can see ourselves there too. So the story begins with the writer uh, where we began reading, telling us that David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. That requires some explaining, which comes, of course, at the beginning of that chapter. David has taken a census of the people in particular, he's taken a census of uh, the number of valiant men who could draw a sword. That probably doesn't seem uh, too remarkable to us. We are subjects of census all of the time, either overtly by our government or less overtly by corporations and by tech companies. Like it or not, census is a fact of life for us. But that is not David's perspective in verse 10. His heart is struck. He says to God, I have sinned greatly in doing this. So what's happening? Well, in the ancient world, rulers and kings and emperors would take censuses for two reasons, and those reasons were often, of course, very closely related. The first was for tax revenue. I mean, if you knew uh, how many people you had and you knew where they were, you could get their money. And the second reason was for conscription into the military. It was for building armies. How many soldiers have we got around here? And both of these are empire-building 
moves. And we get a lot of strong clues to the problem in this particular story in the way that it plays out. David has Joab, his, his warlord commander, to conduct the census along with all of the commanders of the army. So it's clear both in how this census gets carried out over the next nine plus months and the way that it gets reported to David that this is a military census for the purpose of counting warm bodies to fight for the nation. And in verse 9, the report comes back. You've got 1.3 million guys, David. That is, in the ancient world, a very large military force. The problem, of course, was that this is not how things are supposed to work among God's people. Even Joab, the warlord commander, knows this. <laughs> when David asks him to do the census, Joab is shocked and he says, why would my lord the king delight in such a thing? <laughs> Even Joab knows that they are a covenant people, that these are a people that are meant to rely on God and, and meant to rely on the care of God as opposed to all of the normal markers of security and safety in a national world, in the ancient world. Joab knew that, as Psalm 20 puts it so succinctly. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or as Psalm 33 says it, the king is not saved by his great army. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And church, that is the problem underneath the census. And it is as old as the oldest story in the book. David doesn't trust God for his good. David does not trust God. He wants control. And so he will do whatever it takes to get that control. And he becomes a proud, sweaty little godlet. It is the worst of David. And church, you know, this is what's underneath all of my sin. <laughs> and yours too. It's always the same questions that come to us. It's always the same. Am I going to trust the God who has told me? Am I going to trust the God who has shown me that he has my good and the good of the world in mind? Am I going to trust him? Am I going to believe that God? Or am I going to take control and grab that good-looking piece of fruit and pull a whole bunch of stuff down with me into the mess? It is a very old story. And the particulars of it change in your life and mine, but the backbone of it remains very strong and very true and unfortunately very powerful. And church, part of the reason that we have David's story, this one and all of them, is so that we can see this as clearly as we possibly can. This is how sin works. This is how it works. And another part of the reason that we have David's story 
is to see what happens after he realizes what he has done. And we need that part desperately. (laughs) You know, uh, Ambrose, the, the great fourth century bishop of Milan, he said, it is no surprise that people sin. No surprise. And so the question is always, what will we do then? And David's heart struck him. He, pr- he prays this incredibly vulnerable and open-handed prayer. I have sinned greatly, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. I've done very foolishly. There is no mincing here. There's no prevaricating here. It is a double shot of truth served straight. And it is the best of David. When I, was, uh, when I was thinking about this story this week, I kept thinking about the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's in Luke 18, if you want to read it later this afternoon. Jesus tells that story about this proud guy, this, this fool who thanks God that he's so much better than everybody else. And he's standing far off from that other guy, that wise person who who can't even look up into the heavens, who won't even lift his eyes, who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And David is both of those guys. David is both of them in this story, and that is precisely the point. Jesus told us that story so that we could move from being people who trust in ourselves, who trust in our own abilities and righteousness and power and savvy and skills. He told it so that we would move away from trusting ourselves into trusting the God who shows great mercy to sinners. And that is uh, exactly what David does. He moves. Gad, uh, the prophet, comes to David with a choice about the punishment, about the consequence of what he has done. I don't know why God gives him a choice. It happens nowhere else in Scripture to no one else. But I do know that the choices that he, are given, he is given are aimed directly at the kind of nation building that he was trying to do. They are aimed directly at empire building against the kind of pretense that David had shown. His choices are three years of famine for the land or three months of running away from his enemies or three months of plague, three days of plague. And it should be clear, you know, that no matter what David chooses, he is in a very familiar spot. It's one that we have seen him before in life. And if we're being honest, that we have seen ourselves into. When we sin, other people get hurt. Because there is an ecology to sin. And when leaders sin, when when someone like David sins, a lot of people get hurt. Sin is never just confined to that moment in which it occurs. It always ripples out. Most of the time, the consequences of it are unseen to us. Most of the time, the cause and the effect are opaque to us. But here, horrifically, they are crystal clear, written down for our instruction. And what we see here from David, I think, is incredibly beautiful. 
rather than decide, he tells the prophet Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for he is great in mercy. He leaves it solely to God to decide what will happen. And that is remarkable because it is a complete abandonment of the kind of control he had been trying to show. He's going to let God be God, and he's going to do it precisely because he knows who God is. He is merciful. As the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, at his best, David fears God the most. At his best, he trusts God the most. David does not imagine that there is cheap grace. But he believes that in punishment directly from God, there may indeed be grace. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. 70,000 men die in the plague that God sends. It cuts through the men of the nation at lightning speed. The fighting force that David had counted is tellingly and hauntingly reduced significantly. And this is the consequence. This is the dark ecology of King David playing God. But in verse 16, a turn happens. And the writer describes it starkly. And frankly, the writer describes it in terms that stretch our theological categories. This is what the writer says. The Lord relented from the calamity. Just before the capital city was going to be struck, God says to the angel that is working the disaster, it is enough, stay your hand. David said he wanted to fall into the hand of God because his mercy is great. And church, his faith was not misplaced. You know, as, as we've been reading First and Second Samuel together, uh, really since January, <laughs> I've said a handful of times that while David has a lot of things to do uh, as a king, he's got lots of decisions to make, he's got lots of stuff to run, he's got lots of people to manage, he has lots of things to do, but his main role as a king was very simple. His primary job was to reflect the gracious kingship of God over his people. His primary job was to reflect the grace of God to his people. And sometimes, David pulled it off. Like in verse 17, which records a prayer that David prayed while the, the plague was unfolding. This is what David says to God, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but the sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me. That is a desperate prayer prayed to a God he believes will hear him. David the king wants to step in and take the hit for his people. David the king, the shepherd king, wants to step in and take the hit for his sheep. It's a pretty beautiful prayer to hear a guy who had just days before been all about his own control and power pray. It's a, a pretty amazing change. David shows us what serious and mature faith is like. 
someone who is growing and someone who is maturing in faith does not pretend even for a minute that they have it all together. And someone who is growing and someone who is maturing in faith will always point past themselves and, everyone, and past everyone around them to the only source of grace and life and hope that is in this world. And that, church, is why the story of David towers so huge in Scripture. That's why his story and his figure towers over history. Because he shows you and me an honest picture of the life of faith. And he points past himself to the source of all life. And that's why David's prayer for the sheep is charged in a way that he never could have dreamed that it would be. Because his words and that prayer point to the source of grace and hope and life. Because there is a shepherd who stepped in and took the hit for his sheep. <laughs> there is a shepherd king who was hanged between two criminals who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. David was right that God is merciful. And his hope and his faith in God is not misplaced. And church, the cross of the greater son of David is the place where love and justice meets. The cross of the greater son of David is where mercy triumphs over judgment. And the cross of Jesus is the place where people like you and me are slowly changed. We are slowly changed from people who want to play God to people who want to worship him with all that we have and all that we are. So let's cling to Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, our source of life and hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we hear uh, what David said to the prophet and it was so desperate and it was so at the end of himself and it was so deeply true. Let us fall into the hands of God, for he is merciful. And we ask, Father, that you would make us into a people who, who can have that same kind of clarity and that same kind of holy desperation to say it as well ourselves with every part of who we are. Let us fall into your hands, for you are merciful. Father, do that so that we can become strong in our faith, so that we can mature in our faith, so that we can be a people who point past ourselves to the only source of life and hope in this world. And we pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.